In July 2019, writer Jonathan Hickman returned to the Marvel Universe after a nearly four-year sabbatical to deliver House of X number one, a game-changing paradigm shift from Marvel's X-Men comics. With collaborators Pepe Larraz, R.B. Silva, and Marty Gracia, Hickman completely reinvigorated X-Men and the fandom that surrounds it. After the massive success of House of X and Powers of Ten, Hickman turned to an ongoing X-Men series set during the new status quo of the X-Men's Krakoa era, a run that lasted from fall 2019 through summer 2021. Looking back at the full run now, what did we learn? What mysteries still remain? And how effective was Jonathan Hickman's X-Men as a whole? Hello, everybody, and welcome to Crack and Krakoa. I'm Dave Busing, founder and editor-in-chief of ComicBookHerald.com. If you like the Comic Book Herald YouTube channel, please consider liking, subscribing, sharing, and commenting. It all helps me out a great deal. Likewise, you can find reading orders for all sorts of Marvel comics and comics elsewhere, and X-Men comics specifically here with links in the show notes. Over on comicbookherald.com. Some spoilers for the full Jonathan Hickman X-Men run may follow. Proceed with caution. Before digging deep into the content, it's essential to preface the conversation with the following. Jonathan Hickman's post-House Powers X-Men comics are strikingly scattered, often to the point of feeling wholly disconnected. Over the course of about a year and a half, with a COVID pandemic disruption square in the middle, Hickman wrote or co-wrote 35 full issues of X-Men comics, including the five giant-sized specials and two very short teasers in Marvel Incoming Number 1 and Marvel 1000. In the above Comic Book Herald graphic, which you can grab via a link in the show notes, I've reconfigured the run into thematically connected parts, which you'll quickly note is greatly different than publication order. Personally, I find it more enjoyable to read the comics like this grouped into related segments, but admittedly this is with the benefit of having read the full run according to publication as the books were released. The major caveat with the above is I still think you'd want to read X-Men number 1 and X-Men number 4 as your first post-Hawks issues, but beyond that, reading according to segment works great. Regardless of approach, the core takeaway should be there are five primary focuses of the Hickman run, tackling the World of X, a.k.a. Krakoan Affairs, Arako and the X of Swords, or Ten of Swords event, a.k.a. the Apocalypse Family Saga, Nimrod and Mystique, the Children of the Vault, and X-Men Cosmic, which resonates most clearly with Hickman's work on New Mutants. This is the framework I'll be using to consider what actually happened in this run, what questions remain unanswered, and where we're going from here. In terms of framing, Hickman's X-Men work and the work on the X-Men series is primarily through the lens of Cyclops, Scott Summers, as he travels and interacts with various elements of the newly established Krakoa. X-Men number one opens with Professor X promising to show Scott his vision for mutantdom, and through much of the run we're experiencing that in a similar way, our eyes open to the new world of X-Men on Krakoa. From the first issue, Hickman is set on proclaiming this is a bold new era of X-Men comics after too many years of slow incremental changes, or no change at all. 12 of the 21 issues closely involve Cyclops, and indeed, in his pre-Inferno interview with Adventures in Poor Taste, Hickman states this was the original focused intent of the run. This very much speaks to the scattered nature of the work, keener on showing a variety of aspects and threads with Marvel's many mutants than any one centralized plot. Let's begin, speaking of plot, with those scattered throughout the category of the World of X. One of the promises of House of X and the Krakoa era of X-Men is seeing how this new status quo would manifest across the wider Marvel Universe and how mutants declaring a sovereign nation-state for all mutants would impact everything from political alliances to world economies to anti-mutant sentiment. Likewise, the stage is set for the truly fascinating exploration of building a nation in its earliest days and all the complications that brings to the table. Krakoa announces this is a mutant nation with tremendous potential and pharmaceutical advantages, and that leads to unprecedented financial power for mutant kind. This is the driving force for the best issue delving into Krakoan Affairs, X-Men number 4, in which Professor X, Magneto, Apocalypse, Scott Summers, and Gorgon visit Davos, Switzerland for a conversation with the world's foremost economic titans in a display of force and sort of scene setting for what it means for Krakoa.
Krakoa to exist. X-Men number 4 stands out as such a great entry because of the ways it parallels real-world power, governance, and as Hickman is fond of asserting, the ways the hidden hands of economics controls people and ideas. I don't think it's any kind of stretch to say X-Men number 4 is the most directly politically and socially relevant issue of the run, and arguably the only issue where Hickman leans hard into the mutant metaphor and extensions to marginalized communities. Magneto deliberately and clearly lays out the strategy for mutant kind, making it clear that where once force would have dictated his actions, now mutants have learned dominance can best be achieved through money and the control that brings, and the way it will define mutant influence of all aspects on Earth. Ironically, Magneto makes no bones that the strategy is a human one at heart, and that's why it's so resonant outside the fiction of mutant kind. Turn on the news any given day and you'll see countless examples of these lines. Leverage people with debt. Make them pay to be healthy and whole. Make them pay to become educated. Make them pay you interest so they can have a place to live. This is just our world, but here Magneto is describing it from the perspective of the mutants who will manufacture this leverage and wield it for their own control. Of course it will work. It already does. There's a moment in issue 4-2 where Professor X, largely settled to let Magneto do the speechifying, takes off his cerebral helmet for the first time readers had seen since the House and Powers event began. It's as if to say, the era has changed, the methods have adapted and evolved, but these characters, these are your X-Men. There's no Shadow King under the helmet, no Cassandra Nova, at least not outwardly or obviously as we've seen yet. This is your professor, and that was still his dream. But now, we're building a nation now. It's time for new dreams. The World of X-themed issues go on to explore the day-to-day -day life of Krakoa and its culture, none more influentially than X-Men number 7, which introduces Krakoan Crucible. Resurrection of mutants on Krakoa grants immortality of a sort, but it's a problem for all the depowered mutants left not feeling whole following Wanda Maximoff, the Great Pretender's No More Mutants declaration in the wake of House of M, a 2005 Marvel event. So in order to deal with this in a way that doesn't encourage mass suicide, Apocalypse and the Quiet Council of Krakoa settle on, well, a gladiatorial arena where mutants can fight for the right to an honorable death and prove their desire to be a mutant again. It's a very Apocalypse idea. Crucible is compelling because it feels both unique to Krakoan culture and full of sinister complications that call the nature of this island utopia into question. Is mutant kind really okay with cheering on a generally lopsided fight to the death, like Roman gladiators of antiquity? There's a violence and a bloodthirstiness to the proceedings prior to the beautiful miracle of resurrection and mutants reborn as their whole selves. Whether directly intended or not, Crucible mirrors the dark heart of Krakoa, and the way secrets, compromise, or closed-door decisions can influence nations and drive them towards their worst impulses. A theme of Hickman's Krakoa is absolutely that nation-building is fraught with challenges and complex decision-making. Binary assertions of good or evil, too common in superhero comics, are increasingly irrelevant as we consider what it takes to cultivate a people. What matters most? The people's short-term happiness? The longevity of the nation? The final end of mutant survival? Or something deeper and more spiritual, as we see Nightcrawler wrestling with in this issue, and later in the spin-off series Way of X by Cy Spurrier and Bob Quinn? At its fullest, this is the full suite of potential Krakoa offers X-Men comics, in ways wholly unique to the history of the Marvel Universe. The remaining World of X explorations again dig into day-to-day -day life on Krakoa, whether it's Magneto standing up as the nation's hero during the Empire event invasion, or Cyclops and the Quiet Council responding to the emerging threat of octogenarian eco-terrorists' horde culture. There are perfectly valid reasons to find the Hickman run aimless, or worse, boring, but I'm struck rereading even these seemingly one-off pieces how many ideas are set up for future story. Magneto's defense of Krakoa carves out mutant technology, targeted combinations of power sets before Al Ewing gave it a name in Sword Number 1. 
And X-Men number 3, the controversial and out-of-nowhere elder comedy issue, sets up both Hack Krakoan Gates and the psychic feeding of Krakoa, measured by Selene and Emplate, just to name a few examples. There are always more examples, and that's part of the thrill and potentially the disappointment of this run, overflowing ideas with minimal resolution. Part 2, Arako, Ten of Swords. The saga of Araku is particularly unique in Hickman's run because it directly follows up on one of the seeded plots of House of X, and I'd argue is the only plot category that sees a fulfilling end during Hickman's time on the title. It's also the only category with a full event around it, Ten of Swords, which definitely helps. The premise is that in House of X number 5, we learn that Apocalypse is familiar with the land of Krakoa, and that actually thousands of years ago, he was there when demonic forces invaded and split Krakoa's original state, the one land of Okara, into two. Krakoa and Arako. The saga from X-Men into Ten of Swords, then, is the story of what exactly happened and what it means for Apocalypse. The thing Arako does effectively early on, the first threads are continued in X-Men number 2, is lean into the history of Apocalypse as one of few mutants on Krakoa who has generations of experience in history. Where Professor X and Magneto have decades of shaping human-mutant relations, Apocalypse has thousands of years of scheming, plotting, and waiting. And through the arrival of Arako, the Summoner, and Intent of Swords, the full-fledged reveal of an Apocalypse family, there's a strong sense of mutant history, lost mutant culture, and purpose to the character Apocalypse that had never been laid so bare before. I wouldn't have guessed it, but when looking back, the most fully formed character development in the entire run definitely goes to N. Sava Nur. The Ten of Swords reveal that Apocalypse stayed behind on Earth while his wife and children went to Amen to fight for Arako against Annihilation and the Demon Hordes is a huge one for the longtime villain. And it's not just that the romance softens Apocalypse, although certainly revealing the beating heart of the Big Blue Daddy does that, but it's the way it so incisively cuts to the character's motivations as we've seen them in the history of the comics he's appeared in. Apocalypse's mantra of survival of the fittest is given emotional and deliberate heft behind the mission of making Earth's mutants strong enough to support the Araku mutants lost in Ameth. Apocalypse isn't just acting out of belief. He's acting out of desperation, an expectation of a coming disaster, and perhaps most importantly, out of a desire to prove himself strong enough to the woman he loves. Structurally, the reveals of Apocalypse's history remain one of the more controversial formalistic maneuvers of Hickman's time on the title. X-Men issues number 12 to number 14, all Ten of Swords crossovers, all tell the same mutant's history of Araco, but from the vantage point of three different mutants, Summoner, Apocalypse, and Genesis, Apocalypse's wife. The use of comics in the space between panels to expand on known histories is a trick Hickman pulled to greater effect in East of West, but stacked one after the other, the effect feels a bit too openly like a deadline reprieve for Lionel Francis Hugh and Sonny Gao, or perhaps Hickman himself. I think this is most disappointing because Arako, a world inspired by Dune, the Dune planet of Frank Herbert's sci-fi classic, a Hickman favorite, is literally called Arrakis, has so much world to fill in and fantasy to explore. Time spent rehashing known details to the degree these issues do is time away from getting to know the White Sword or the Legacy of Annihilation or any of the really cool world building on display here, and I definitely would have preferred more of that. Big picture though, the addition of Arako and the many, many new mutants it brings to the Marvel Universe is an absurdly rich windfall of new character and potential story. The possibilities of fully developing characters like Iska the Unbeaten or Tarn the Uncaring, not to mention the millions of Iraqi mutants as yet unnamed, is a much greater legacy than even the updates to an established property like Apocalypse. That might be the thing in decades we look back and say, this was the legacy of Hickman's X-Men. 
Among the many massive reveals of Ten of Swords' core three issues, Creation, Revelation, and Destruction, co-written by Hickman and Teeny Howard, the return of Cyclops as our guide as he and Jean determine the need for an X-Men roster is one of the most important and memorable. It's honestly a bit of a remarkable thing where readers realize together, again, 13-14 issues into this run, that Hickman and Lyle Francis' U run has lacked a proper X-Men team for the duration of a series called X-Men. Ultimately, though, if you flash back to Ten of Swords and look at what Hickman wrote or co-wrote, the effect and legacy is the most decisively successful of anything in the run following House and Powers. Apocalypse and the story of Okara is firmly followed up on and resolved. We also get the restoration of a mutant Captain Britain Corps led by Betsy Braddock, the restoration of an X-Men team, the restoration of the Apocalypse family in Ameth, a thing we didn't know we should want but apparently did a vastly expanded mythos and relevance of Otherworld, complications with Krakoa's resurrection process, particularly for Rockslide and Gorgon, a reconfiguring of Krakoa's Quiet Council, which is still impending as the time of this recording, and millions of Arakan mutants on Earth, including the island Araka itself. Category 3, what I'm calling Nimrod's Destiny, aka the story of Mystique, Orcus, Destiny, and Nimrod. House and Powers also set the stage for Nimrod and Destiny as major players in the future of mutant stories, and Hickman interlocks both threads across X-Men number 6 and X-Men number 20 by following up on Mystique's role during the mutant invasion of the Orcus Forge in House of X, and Professor X and Magneto's manipulation of Raven Darkholm despite Moira's House Powers declaration that Destiny, Mystique's wife, cannot be resurrected. The backdrop is that Nimrod is the ultimate manifestation of mutant hunting sentinel technology, and that Moira's ninth life is used so mutants of Life 10 can destroy the Nimrod facility before it comes online. This happens in House of X number 3 and number 4, where we learn in these issues of X-Men is that not only did this mission not succeed as it originally appeared, but unless Mystique can infiltrate Orcus again in time, the inevitability of bringing a Nimrod online will still come to fruition. At the heart of this story is the emotional core of Professor X and Magneto withholding Mystique's wife, Destiny, from resurrection protocols as punishment for both her past and current failures. Nothing quite shines a light on the cruelty and callous pragmatism of the duo as their treatment of Mystique, knowing full well that regardless of Mystique's action, they will never ever grant her the comfort of her loved one. Of course, what Magneto and Professor X don't know is that Destiny foresaw this occurrence and gave Mystique the instructions to burn it all down if they would not resurrect her. Again, it's the perfect distillation of the hubris of the mutant ruling head of Xavier, Magneto, and Moira, as their hubris and treatment of those around them, like pawns in the grand game, will ultimately result in their undoing. Or at least it sure feels like that's where we're heading. Despite Mystique's infiltration of Orcus, she does allow Dr. Gregor to successfully create a Nimrod, with the personality of her late husband, who sacrificed himself defending the Orcus Forge and killing the mutant strike team in House of X. This particular development feels like one of the larger glaring holes of the Hickman run, as Mystique has countless opportunities to strike earlier, but instead literally watches the successful Nimrod launch to completion. So it's either a rare example of dubious plotting, or Mystique's revenge involves allowing Nimrod to come online, perhaps as part of her efforts to burn Krakoa to the ground for the Professor and Magneto's betrayal. Likewise, Orcus, this new AIM-esque entity for the Krakoa era, remains an anti-mutant organization with a great deal of mystery, from the nature of Director Devo, seen in X-Men number 1 but then rarely ever again, to the current status of the surviving Nimrod. The Nimrod's Destiny sequence is the most directly tied to the core of House and Powers, though, as it's the only issue in the Hickman run that features an on-panel appearance of Moira X, reading the collected diaries of Destiny and setting the stage for the Inferno event. Unsurprisingly, it's an insanely exciting moment. 
When the Professor and Magneto recognize the return of Nimrod means that plans have changed, and when they have to finally, Magneto, literally with hat in hand, return to Moira for guidance in the next phase. I do think that regardless of what Inferno unveils, and I, inspect, I suspect it will be plenty, slow playing Moira to the degree Hickman did, and then not hanging around the franchise for the long haul, will go down as the biggest misfire of this run. As much as I'll talk here about what I like, the single greatest hook of House and Powers was the lifelines of Moira X, and a run devoid of that is just lacking. Category 4. The Children of the Vault the most effective continuity pull in the run comes with Hickman reaching back to Mike Carey's deeply underrated run across X-Men and X-Men Legacy, and reviving the Children of the Vault. The Children are particularly effective because they represent one of the core tenets of House and Powers, the rise of the Man-Machine hybrid as the greatest threat to mutantum, and how competing adaptive natures mirror and collide with one another. For the unfamiliar, the children are technologically and temporally advanced beings, more or less controlled by an AI known as the City, and they reside in the vault where they can speed up time to evolve their warriors for their planned takeover of Earth. The X-Men's advances on Krakoa throw a wrinkle into the vault's plans, setting the stage for an X-Men mission to the journey of the center of the vault. Hickman makes great use of the children as antagonists for mutant kind, as their resurrection protocols and long-term planning for survival are similar in so many ways. We also see the vault creep into Hickman's loosely connected giant-sized X-Men number five or X-Men five issues, which all primarily revolve around the vault infecting Storm and her traveling to the world, a Weapon X designed mirror of the vault to cure herself and avoid resurrection. The Children of the Vault are an appropriately giant-sized mutant problem, so that when Professor X calls them the greatest threat to mutant kind, it makes some sense, particularly knowing that he knows about Homo Novissima and the man-machine hybrids at the end of Moira's sixth life. The payoff for the Children of the Vault takes place in X-Men number 18 and 19, with 19 is what I'd argue is Hickman's best single issue of the X-Men series. Wolverine, Laura Kinney, Sink, and Darwin are sent into the Vault to uncover their plans, and although we knew heading in that time passes differently in the Vault, we didn't necessarily know it would mean the immense quantity of years this trio would spend together surviving there, right, and trying to get by. One of the hardest elements of writing X-Men is deciding which of the many mutants to focus on, and this focus story is a masterclass in taking three mutants nobody would have expected to put together and sending them into a unique enough situation that you can't imagine anyone else fitting in that space. Structurally, X-Men number 19 is the most formally inventive work of the run, utilizing data page timelines to convey hundreds of years of story as infographic, which then intersects with the more traditional panel-by-panel -panel progression of our three mutants. The effect is longevity and history of story that is nearly impossible to achieve in 22 pages of a single issue. For all the thrill of data page structure and foreboding quotes leading into issues of House and Powers, X-Men number 19 is one of the rare reminders how Hickman's chart-based thinking can exceed the limits of single-issue comics. Likewise, narration by Sink, aka Everett Ross, takes a mutant I had little knowledge of and makes him the beating heart of the story, alongside his centuries-in-the-making romance with Laura Kinney. It's a story that I actually found more emotional on rereads. For all the talk of Hickman as the cold, calculated plotter, here the creator is with a capital L love story as the heart of his run on the X-Men series. The biggest downside to all this is that even after Sink and Laura escape the vault, we're left with still more questions than resolution. What is the fate of Darwin, still trapped inside and used by the Vault? What of the fourth generation of Vault warriors now enhanced by Darwin's mutant DNA? The threat is entirely unresolved, and if anything, only made worse. This is definitely a theme of the run, as so many threats are made worse by mutant meddling. Nimrod only comes online after the mutants attack, and after Mystique attempts to derail. The children of the Vault only evolve to a fourth generation after capturing Darwin. An Amen's Annihilation wave only threatens Earth after Apocalypse creates an external gate granting them access. I don't know that the run is arguing instead for inaction, but it seems especially true that attempts to shape the future have a habit of backfiring and creating the thing mutants feared most. The fifth category, a huge one, X-Men Cosmic. 
Hickman utilizes his four-issue run on New Mutants to set the stage for four more issues of cosmic-centered X-Men issues in stories that probably feel the most familiar to his work across Fantastic Four or the Avengers during the Infinity Event. Primarily, the comics set the stage for mutant relations with longtime cosmic counterparts, the Shi'ar and the Brood, and even work in a surprising War of Kings-related mystery for Third Summer's brother Vulcan. As a whole, this run of Hickman Cosmic never touches the heights of Powers of Ten, and the seeded plots involving black holes, galactic intelligences, and the phalanx, those don't get touched on either. Nonetheless, like elsewhere, we see the issue set the stage for a lot of potential, even if left wholly unfulfilled. Early on in New Mutants, some mysterious seeds are planted, in one case almost literally, as Doug Ramsey and Mondo discover the impact the Krakoan Gate has on alien biomes, with the revelation that the Krakoa Gate naturally wants to terraform. This will trigger alarm bells for those familiar with mutant kind's terraforming work in Planet Size X-Men, but it's also a largely unresolved mystery of Krakoa. We still don't know much about the sentient island's thoughts or plans itself, and that remains an intriguing story to tell. In addition to retrieval of a King Brood Egg, which comes into play later in X-Men, Hickman concentrates primarily on the Shi'ar Empire, including its power structures and organizations like the Death Commandos. Of the most import, we see Gladiator stepping down from a role as Emperor, as Zandra, the genetic offspring of Lalandra Naramani and Professor Charles Xavier, inherits the throne, with the likes of Deathbird at her side. Like everything in comics, misunderstanding-based fights break out, but primarily the story works to realign mutant and Shi'ar alliances, with new mutants OGs Sam and Bobby staying to live in Shi'ar space, and Gladiator bequesting Cyclops a gift of one of their beach moons. For me, the major takeaway from much of the cosmic conversation is that the mutant long game is very much a core part of Marvel Cosmic. They are thinking about evolving and advancing beyond the stars, not just on Earth, and the alliances they make with cosmic power players are an enormous part of why the Krakoa era is grander in scope than anything previous. Speaking of cosmic allies, X-Men issues 8 and 9 focus on the Brood and their reclamation of the King Egg, which, spoiler alert, is comically eaten and subsumed by Lil O. Brew, the new King of the Brood. This turns one of the X-Men's longest-running alien enemies into a potential new ally and frankly a weaponized horde force, with Brew given the opportunity to wield the Brew hive mind himself. Although, as recently as an issue of Vidal and Roderick's New Mutants, we've seen that Brew may not fully be in control. The Brood issues are a really good example of Hickman's desire to break all the rules of X-Men comics, reconfiguring longtime adversaries as political factions on the side of mutant kind as they scheme bigger and bolder than ever. It's also a good example of Hickman's sense of humor, with the Brood turn undercutting an enormous battle versus the Brood aliens. One of the most underrated elements of Hickman's causing X-Men is how the writer weaves in the Kree Supreme Intelligence, a favorite of his since Fantastic Four, as a schemer controlling Brood behavior across the ages. On the surface level, this is a deft touch making full use of the Marvel Cosmic Tapestry, but on a more interesting, nuanced level, I think the Supreme Intelligence here is meant to mirror a stand-in for Hickman's Moira X. The Supreme Intelligence is the combined intellect, perspective, and experience of the Kree people, and is consistently portrayed as an amoral end result of pure pragmatism and species dominance across the galaxy. While Moira lacks quite the same adaptive, combined learnings of her people, her experiences across lifelines are comparable and I anticipate her end goals are very similar. The Supreme Intelligence can wait eons for the Kree to strike and to thrive. Same goes for Moira and the mutants. My favorite cosmic mystery in the Hickman run is also the most unexpected, and it's the saga of Gabriel Summers, aka Vulcan. In the comics from X-Men Deadly Genesis through War of Kings, Gabriel is a scorned Omega-level mutant with a vendetta against Professor X, an increasingly cruel manic disposition as he ascends to the role of Emperor of the Shi'ar. Put simply, last we saw Gabriel, he was an absolute enemy of the X-Men, and suddenly, his resurrection in House and Powers has him as a hard-drinking himbo lazing about in the Summer's house on the moon. Something here has changed. 
In War of Kings, Vulcan and Black Bolt, king of the Inhuman Kree faction, fight to the near death, creating a fault in space that goes on to connect to the Cancerverse, as seen in Thanos Imperative. And what we learn in these X-Men issues is that Vulcan never actually died. What we learn is he was instead captured by a mysterious alien race and implanted with something to conceal his true nature. So as far as we still know, Vulcan is a plant in service of these beings and that bomb, perhaps quite literally given Vulcan's power set, is just waiting to go off. I'm hoping this means it's something we'll see in the pages of the Inferno event, but we shall see. All in all, the Hickman run of X-Men won't be uttered in the same hallowed breaths as Fantastic Four, Secret Warriors, or New Avengers. Like a lot of the Dawn of X, it coasts along the powers of House and Powers, and is powered on the thrill of potential and possibility. Nonetheless, I quite loved having this central tour of Krakoa at the heart of X-Men comics, and for my money, Hickman's presence as a grand plotter and maker of mutant mystery will be sorely missed in the post-Inferno X-Men landscape. Of course, Inferno is the event up next, and that's going to conclude the Hickman era for the time being, and until there's some, perhaps, triumphant return in the distant future but all that is just uh you know hypothesis and theory right now but in the meantime we have inferno and then we have this x-men run and i'm curious to know what did you think of jonathan hickman's x-men let me know in the comments on this video i would love to hear your thoughts as well in particular, I want to thank everybody who goes over to patreon.com slash and supports the site. Thank you to all the mysterious benefactors who I will thank by name as part of your, uh, you know, part of your uh, package here for your donations. Thank you, Jesse W., Megan Gatman, Cole Weathers, Martin Lopez, Brent Bowser, Professor X3769, Richard Renz, Adam, Chris Mervika, Verosimilitude, Terranort, Ed Mackey, Clyde DeGlyde, Pinball Drew, Mike Solomons, Matt Mahoney, John Samander, and Joshua Bentley. Thank you all very much for your generous support, and thanks to everybody else. I'm Dave. You can find my stuff at comicbookherald.com, at comicbookherald, anywhere on social. Look for the best comics ever in my world this year podcast for more from me. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And as always, enjoy the comics. <laughs> <laughs>